0: So I'm going to cut you off at the pass here as you're turning to Isaiah, and I want you to stop at Daniel, Daniel chapter one. Um, one of the things we have to remember is that Isaiah in, in Isaiah chapter forty to sixty six, which is where we're at right now, Isaiah is writing 150 years ahead of his time. He's writing to the people that will be in captivity in Babylon. So, so here, here, here's here's the the like brain act exercise I want you to think about today, okay? Isaiah is writing to Daniel's generation. You got that? In, in fact, it's possible that uh, uh, Daniel and some of the other um, uh, Jewish people that were taken back into in captivity, that they were aware of some of the things that Isaiah had prophesied about them. So, uh, so anyway, just, just make that connection in your brain that what Isaiah is doing right now is he's talking to Daniel's generation. Isaiah is prophesying to Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, Daniel's three friends, and and that time in history. And and the reason I want you to go to Daniel, uh, just just for a moment, we're just going to kind of wave our hands at it, is I want to give you a historical context of why Isaiah is writing this prophecy. Uh, Sometimes we we don't connect things in the Bible like this. But uh, turn with me to Daniel chapter 3. As we kind of parachute in here, we're just going to do a kind of a hit-and-run uh, look at Daniel today. But what's going on here as we come to Daniel chapter 3 is, you remember the king of Babylon is a guy named Nebuchadnezzar. And uh, under his power, um, the Jews have been taken into captivity. Uh, Jerusalem has been destroyed. And, of course, the book of Daniel focuses on four junior high boys, right? Daniel and then his three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, And Azariah, and then you remember the, the king, the Babylonian king, in order to change their culture and their worldview, one of the first things he did was to change their name. So Daniel's name was changed to Belteshazzar, and then the, the three names of the three friends are typically what we know, um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, now the interesting thing, uh, and I want to see if you remember this, when, when the king changes their names,
1: I want you to tell me what was the significance of those name changes in Daniel. Do you remember? And you'll need to unmute or use the chat window. Who's they their gods.
0: Yes. Okay. What, what does the name Daniel mean? Does anybody know the name Daniel? I, I know this is really, really early, early Sunday morning, and I'm making you think about the etymology of Hebrew words. I know, I know. That's not very nice. But anybody remember what this is? Daniel means God is my judge. That little word L, E-L, on the end of the name Daniel is the shorthand abbreviation for the, the word for God in Scripture. So it means God is my judge. Hananiah, Mishael, there's God again, Azariah, okay, all four of those names either... Uh, uh, point to the word Elohim, the God of Scripture, or Yahweh, the the personal name of God. So all four of those names point to the Jewish God. So they come into Babylonian territory. They come into captivity. The first thing that the king does is he says, we're going to eradicate any reference to the Jewish God. So he changes their names. And all four of the new Babylonian names given to the four teenagers were uh, names that would promote the Babylonian gods because Babylon was a place full of idolatry. And not only was it full of idolatry in terms of false gods and false deities, but look at chapter 3, verse 1. Remember what Nebuchadnezzar does? Nebuchadnezzar, chapter 3, verse 1, made an image of gold, the height of which was 60 cubits and its width 60 cubits and he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of babylon and and, and do you remember why he did this this is, This is the statue got me high situation right he He goes out he's had this incredible military success he Nebuchadnezzar has taken over the assyrian empire the the superpower of the day and and it went to his head didn't it and so he goes out and he builds this this statue. And you remember the proclamation. If we were to read the narrative, you would see this. right? He gives this, this proclamation in verse 4. To you, O people, this command is given. Peoples, nations, men of every language. At, at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the trigon, the psaltery, the bagpipe, and all kinds of music. You are to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. And, and of course, you remember the consequence, right? Everybody that didn't fall down. And worship the statue. Do you remember what happened to them? But what, what was the threat?
1: Ernie just <laughs> mentioned. Thrown into the fire.
0: They're thrown into the fiery furnace, and, and we all know the story of how uh, Daniel's three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, defy the king, and uh, they are thrown into the fiery furnace, and God protects them. And, and you, you know the story. But but I say this at the start of our time in Isaiah today is that's the picture you have to have. Of what's going on when Isaiah writes what he's going to read, what we're going to read today. Uh, god's people, the Jewish nation, are in a pagan nation. They are surrounded by Babylonian gods. The king Nebuchadnezzar is so puffed up and arrogant in his mind, he goes and, and builds what was probably a statue of himself. We don't know that for sure, but it was probably a statue of himself uh, in, in his in his uh, pride, and then calls for all the nations to bow down and worship him with a threat of, of certain painful deaths for all that would not comply. So with that picture of idolatry and, and pagan worship and, and what's going on, I want you to turn now back to Isaiah chapter 44, because this chapter is largely about idolatry. And you have to have that picture of what it was actually like in your mind if this is going to make sense to you today okay so so let's do this now and we'll flip over to
1: uh, the powerpoint okay so uh da, 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 and let's try that oh no hang on that didn't work hang on Okay, do you guys see that? Give me a thumbs up. You got a thumbs up. I can see that. Great. Okay. All right. Let me move you guys over here so I can see you. I got to keep an eye on you, you know. Okay. So Isaiah chapter 44 is where we're going today. Isaiah chapter 44. If you want to turn over there
0: and, uh, and let's look at um, the chapter, okay? Chapter 44, verse 1. But now listen, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you and formed you from the womb, who will help you. Do not fear, O Jacob, my servant, and you, uh, Yeshurun, whom I have chosen. Uh, That's another Another reference to Israel. For I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. And they will spring up among the grass like poplars by the streams of water. This one will say, I am the Lord's. And that one will call in the name of the Lord. And another will write in his hand, belonging to the Lord, and will name Israel's name with honor. Well, what's going on here? Okay, well, let's... Let's talk about this. So the title of the message today is The Folly of Following False Gods. And um, just just remind you for a minute here, uh, for those of you that uh, are just coming on, um, if you go to gbcgranberry.com
1: slash Isaiah, okay, I'll, I'll just do this here. Okay, you all see that?
0: GBCGranberry.com slash Isaiah. Uh, if you want the notes for today, um, I mentioned that early on, but I realized se- several of you came on since I mentioned that. So GBCGranberry.com slash Isaiah will get you the notes. Okay, for today. And then there are also, the link is in the chat window there if you'd prefer to access it that way. Now, so the, the title today is The Folly of Following False Gods. Now you'll notice Some familiar themes here. In the first five verses, what I just read, again we see that Israel will be redeemed. Remember in the last chapter, in the last chapter, in chapter 43, uh, we see Israel's disobedience, Israel's uh, rejection, Israel's uh, breaking of God's law, and, and we see this over and over and over again. Isaiah is looking ahead to this time where Israel is in captivity and noting that many of them still remain unrepentant, and, uh, so there's, there's no hope for Israel in Israel. The only hope for Israel is if God acts. And in verses 1 to 5 of chapter 44, again, we see God reaffirming His love for Israel, His creation of Israel, His choosing of Israel, and the fact that He will redeem Israel. He's reiterating those covenant promises again today. And you'll notice in the next three verses, uh, we see God's greatness. We looked at this in detail last time, but but just look at it again. Look at verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. You you thought that that was Jesus talking in the book of Revelation. Well, it originates right here in the book of Isaiah, talking about the eternality of God. Uh, He's the first. He is the last. He's always been. There is no God besides me, verse 6. Uh, God tells us, who is like me? Let him proclaim and declare it. Yes, let him recount it to me in order from the time that I established the ancient nation and let them declare to them the things that are coming and the events that are going to take place. Do not tremble and do not be afraid. Have I not long since announced it to you and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? Or is there any other rock? I know of none. So again, we just get this this reminder again that there is no one like the Lord. There is no one like him. God is reminding his people that he alone is God. Now again, re- remember the context, okay? It, it, the context, he's talking to Israelites uh, who are enslaved in Babylon in a pagan uh, Nation full of idolatry, full of false worship. So it's in that realm he's saying, do not trust in these other gods. Do not turn to them. I alone am God, okay? Now you say, well, uh, why is he going to say that? Well, look at the next part of the verse, verse 9. Those who fashion a graven image are all of them futile, and their precious things are of no profit. Even their own witness fail to see or know so that they will be put to shame, okay? So what Isaiah is doing here is he is going to attack the idolatry of the Babylonians. Follow me now. Isaiah is going to attack the idolatry of the Babylonians and the idolatry that the Jewish people are tempted to follow during their time in Babylon, okay? So he's talking to the Daniel generation now. And as we just saw in Daniel, there is pagan deities all around, they're building statues. Their false worship is going on. So, so listen listen to what Isaiah says to Daniel's generation. Okay, Verse 10. Who has fashioned a god or cast an idol to no profit? Behold, all his companions will be put to shame, for the craftsmen themselves are mere men. He's saying that the guys that build these false deities are just men. They're just human beings. Let them all assemble. Back to the text. Let them all assemble themselves. Let them stand up. Let them tremble. Let them together be put to shame. God is saying that the creators of idols need to be put to shame. Verse 12. The man shapes iron into a cutting tool and does his work over the coals, fashioning it with hammers and working with his strong arm. He also gets hungry. (laughs) I love this. He also gets hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and becomes weary. So, again, he's talking about... The frailty of mere men that would make idols, you know they don 't eat, they get tired they don't go, they don 't drink, they get thirsty, right Verse thirteen, another shapes wood, he extends a measuring line, he outlines it with red chalk, he works with it and plans and outlines it with a compass, and makes it like the form of a man, like the beauty of a man, so that it may sit in his house. Surely he cuts cedars for himself and takes a cypress or an oak and raises it for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants a fir and then the rain makes it grow and then it becomes something for a man to burn. So he takes one of them and warms himself. He also makes a fire to bake bread. Now, now look at this. Here's what he's saying. I need to, I need to see it here for a minute. Okay. So here's what he's saying. You know, you go outside and you find a tree. Oh, you don't have the tree you want. Okay, you plant. A tree, and the tree grows, and the rain brings it, and the tree goes up, and then you cut down the tree, and you make some to warm your house when it's cold. And you um, uh, you use the other part to light your oven, right? So you go outside, and you, you take down this tree, and then look back at verse uh, 15. Uh, then it becomes something for a man to burn, so he takes one of them, and he warms himself. He also makes a fire to bake bread. Oh, and by the way, he takes some of it and makes a god. Isn't that crazy? The same tree that he's using to warm his house, the same tree he's using to make his dinner, he takes the same part of that tree and turns it into a god and bow downs and worships it. How crazy is that, is what he's saying. The ridiculousness of making a... Exactly, exactly. He also makes a god and worships it. He makes it a graven image and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over half of it, he eats his meat and roasts the roast and is satisfied. He warms himself and says, ah, I am warm. I have seen the fire. But the rest of it, he makes into a God and a graven image, and he falls down before it and worships it. Listen, follow this. This is, this is the crazy part. Listen to this. He falls down before it, and he worships it, and he also prays to it, and he says, deliver me, for you are my God. Keith. Wow! Yes, Roger.
1: Blake Hanna also. I give credit to this. He said, "You better hope you get the right half of the tree."
0: That's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. You don't want to switch halves. That's right. Verse 18. They do not know, nor do they understand. For he has smeared over their eyes so that they cannot see in their hearts, so they cannot comprehend. No one recalls, nor is their knowledge or understanding to say. In other words, they're clueless about this, okay? They, they, this is a McFly moment. They, they just do not understand. Verse 19, no one recalls. that. No one gets this, okay? No one understands this. You ready? I have burned half of it in the fire, and I have also baked bread over its coals. I roast meat on it. Then I make the rest of it into an abomination. I fall fall down before a block of wood. He feeds on ashes. A deceived
1: heart has turned him aside. And we say, wow, wow, how foolish. Now, if you're like me, you read passages like this in the Old Testament, and one of the questions you have is,
0: uh, why is the Bible so often warning us about the folly of idolatry? And, and, you know, we might understand in part why that is. I mean, if we were to go back to Daniel and read more about the, the pagan nations, the pagan rituals, uh, I don't know where you're at in your Bible reading plan. Uh, I'm in the book of 1 Kings right now. And, uh, the nation has been divided and all of a sudden they're building statues all over the, the fruited plain of Israel. Every high place they're setting up an altar. they they're building a statue of an Ashtaroth or a, a, some sort of pagan deity. We're, we're getting that, that point in, in, the, the Bible where Elijah shows up and he attacks the prophets and the false gods of the surrounding nations uh you know so this is all over the bible but when we when we think about today i mean we, we are sophisticated 21st century american christians right we we are above idolatry aren't we and now this is great cuz we can all see each other we we are we are seeing into the homes of one another and uh you know i'm looking over roger and ruth's shoulder right now i don't see any buddhas in their kitchen right there you know and and uh you know i'm looking over there at the, at the heralds. i don't see any ashrafs on their their cupboard back there, and you know, the wards, I don't see any pagan deities outside there, or the Warrens, you know, there's no astroph hanging from the trees out there in the Warren's backyard. So this is all very encouraging, right? Is idolatry really
1: a problem today?
0: And that's what I want to talk with you about. You're nodding your heads like, we're on to you, Keith, we know where you're going. Well good. I'm glad you're on to me and I'm glad you know where I'm going, because I would propose to you that idolatry is more serious today uh, than perhaps even in Isaiah's time. You say, why is that? Because in 21st century Western culture, idolatry is rampant. But here's the thing you have to see. Today's idolatry is not overt, it's covert. It's not external with Ashtoreth and Baal's And and pagan deities, you know, we we can't go down to the Granbury Square and see a statue, you know, of Nebuchadnezzar on the plains of Dura, but we do deal with internal idolatry, and I want to talk to you about that because everything that Isaiah says, follow me on this. Everything that Isaiah says about overt idolatry is also true of covert idolatry. Listen for a second. There are things that we turn into false gods that are just as much foolish and folly as building an actual statue from a tree in your backyard, putting part of it in your fireplace, part of it in your wood-burning stove, and making the rest into an idol that you bow down and worship and say, deliver me. There is just as serious idolatry today as then. So let let me prove that to you, okay? Would you turn with me in your Bible... Let's get back here. Would you turn with me in your Bible to Exodus chapter 20? Exodus chapter 20. Uh, and I want to I try to answer this question for you. What is worship? Because we can't really understand idolatry unless we understand worship. And, and, and we, have, we have a serious worship deficiency today. Uh, the worship deficiency today goes like this. Hey, We're going to worship God now. Let's get out my guitar. See, see, that's the worship deficiency. We we have reduced worship in our culture to music. We have reduced worship in Christianity to I'm going to flip on my favorite Spotify uh, playlist and sing to the Lord. And, and you know what? That's a good way to worship, okay? I'm not here to tell you that singing and music is not a part of worship because singing and music are a important part of worship today. But if we reduce worship to only music, we miss the whole point. And if we miss the whole point, we will not understand the message of Scripture in regard to worship and idolatry, Okay? Worship is not the emotion you feel when you listen to certain music. That is not worship, okay? Now, that can be a part of worship, but the emotion you feel during certain songs and music is not worship, and that is so important that we see that, okay? Worship is much more significant, than an emotion that comes or goes, okay? Look at Exodus chapter 20. Of course, that you knew this. This is the Ten Commandments, and uh, Moses is receiving the laws from God. Look at chapter 20, verse 1. Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You ready? Here it is. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is heaven above or on earth beneath or in the water under the earth. Now follow me here. This is verse 5. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Will you see right out of the gate here, that the first two commandments that have to do with worship and idolatry, have you noticed that there's nothing about a guitar in this text? Can you just look and see that with me? There is nothing about a guitar. There's no drum set. There's no electric bass. There's no trombone. There is no, this is a musicless verse. Now, again, that doesn't mean that worship doesn't involve music sometimes. Certainly it does, and we want our music to be worshipful to the Lord. But worship in and of itself is not particularly a musical endeavor. It is an endeavor, look back at the text, of love and keeping the commandments. Do you see that there? Worship is about loving and keeping the commandments. It's about loyalty. It's about trust. It's about allegiance to God alone and not giving our heart of allegiance or love or trust or obedience to anything or anyone else. Okay? Okay. The, the the first couple commandments of the Ten Commandments are the commands of exclusive allegiance. God desires the exclusive allegiance of his people. Okay? Now, with that in mind, let, let's, let's flip to the other end of your Bible and talk about Romans chapter one. Okay, we're trying to get a handle on worship here, okay? That's what we're trying to do, and, and we've got to kind of you know do hit and run exposition here. But I I need to at least build a a foundation for us to think about this. We're not going to understand what Isaiah talks about in terms of idolatry if we don't understand worship first, okay? So Romans chapter 1. Please turn over there. Romans chapter 1. In this text, you guys know it well, God, God through Paul is describing the predicament of every fallen human being. In other words, people come into the world with a fundamental problem, and that fundamental problem is what the gospel is designed to address. And he tells us that back in chapter 1, verse 16. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. Okay, so why do we need salvation? Well, verse 18, 19, and 20 tell us that men and women are under the wrath and judgment of God. You say, why are they under the wrath and judgment of God? Verse 21 tells us because even though people know God and don't, uh, and, and, Even though they know God, they don't honor him as God. They do not give thanks, but they have futile speculations and foolish and dark hearts. You say, okay, so what is the problem? Why is God's wrath coming? Why do we need the gospel? Verse 23, because people, follow me here, exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man. What's he saying? He's saying fallen people come into the world as idolaters. They come in, follow me on this, all people come into this life with a worship disorder. They come into this life worshiping and serving and setting their allegiance and love and trust on the wrong things. Instead of God, look at what it says. They're, they're worshiping images. They're worshiping man. They're worshiping birds. Uh, and, and, um, <clears throat> God goes on to say in verse 25, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. Now, if you're following me on this, you need to understand this. The fundamental problem of humanity at its core is a worship problem. Do you see that? Men and women made to worship God, made to give them their exclusive allegiance, their loyalty, their love, their obedience, their submission, and find their joy and satisfaction in this God, that was how it was supposed to be, because of sin now, all of our worship engines are aimed in the wrong direction. You got that? Instead of our worship focus being aimed upward at God, our worship engine is aimed outward at other parts of the creation. We worship and serve the creature instead of the creator. Now, now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, I'm not worshiping the trees in my backyard. I'm not worshiping the, you know, the bushes, the flowers, as pretty as they are. You know, I love my cat, but most days I don't worship it. Okay, all right, yeah, right, I'm with you on that. But you have to think deeper than that. What Paul is describing here is not just that we would worship a thing in creation, but that our heart, listen listen carefully, that our heart would be captured or focused on or led by anything else in this life other than god it doesn't have to be an animal it doesn't have to be a tree it can be anything in this life that captures your affections that that steals your loyalty that that pulls you away in desire and love such that that thing is driving this, in the, in the steering wheel of your life. And if you think about it, that's really what an idol is. An idol is not defined by a tree or a statue or it's a Buddha or it's an Asherah. But listen to me. An idol is anything that replaces God in your life. That's what idolatry is. An idol is anything that replaces God in your life. It's anything, anything that captures your allegiance or love or trust or loyalty or submission or obedience when only God should be the object of those pursuits okay that's what idolatry is and that's what the bible is teaching us that idolatry goes much deeper than just the statue and if you don't believe me uh, just turn back very quickly to ezekiel chapter 14 uh, taking you all over the Bible today, so uh, so hang on to your hats and keep your seatbelts fastened as we go around here. Um, so, so as you're turning to Ezekiel, now remember Ezekiel was another prophet of the Old Testament. He's writing in a similar culture and a similar similar day as Isaiah. Now here's what's going on: Ezekiel is going to confront the idolatrous elders of Israel. You say, well, why is he going to do that? Because they are worshiping false gods. Now now look at Ezekiel chapter 14, the word of the Lord comes to Ezekiel as the elders of Israel come down to Mr. Ezekiel's house and the word of the Lord comes to him. This is Ezekiel 14, verse 3. Son of man, that's talking to Ezekiel, these
1: men, that's the elders of Israel, have set up their idols in their hearts and have put right before the faces the stumbling block of their... Iniquity.
0: Look at verse four. Any man of the house of Israel who sets up his idols in his heart puts right before his face the stumbling block of his iniquity, and then comes to the prophet. I, the Lord, will be brought to bring an answer in the matter in view of the multitude of his idols, in order to lay hold of the hearts of the house of Israel who are estranged from me through all their idols. Okay, look up for a minute. Look up. I need to see you here. Okay, this is really important. Ezekiel is saying an idol does not have to be a physical statue. In fact, the real problem with idolatry is what? What did God just say through Ezekiel here? What's the
1: real issue of idolatry in the hearts of people? What is it? Putting something before God.
0: Putting something before God. And, and what does, did you catch it at the end of verse four? What is it that God wants? Actually,
1: verse, uh, verse five. What is it that God wants from people? What is it? Our
0: hearts. He wants our hearts. That's right. Do you see that? When, when, if, if you go out to your backyard right now and you tear down all of your Asherahs and all of your Baals and all of your Buddhas and throw them in the trash, God is not happy with you yet.
1: <laughs>
0: no, he wants your heart And idolatry and worship are matters of the heart. It's not just the external statue that God forbids. It is the idolatrous worship of the heart. God wants the hearts of his people set on him and him alone. And idolatry is forbidden and false worship is a threat simply because it draws our hearts away from God. Okay, you got that? Does that make sense? Okay, well, that's all introduction. So, so let's go back here. Let's go back here. Okay, now what is worship? Okay, so we've looked at that there. Let me give you a definition, okay? Worship is the ongoing activity of the heart that expresses love, trust, loyalty, and submission toward some object that is believed to provide something valuable, delightful, or beneficial. Okay, that's worship in a nutshell. Now, notice it's an ongoing activity. God hardwired us for worship. In other words, you can't turn off your worship. You say, well, what if I turn off my, my iPhone? I'm not listening to my worship music anymore. You're still worshiping. Because worship is not just music. It's not just something we do at church. It is the ongoing activity of the heart. Your heart, my heart, is constantly latching on to objects, objects that express our love, our trust, our loyalty, and our submission. You say, why do we latch on to those objects? Because we believe those objects in some way will provide us with something valuable, delightful, or beneficial. And God says, I made you to find those things in me, because I alone am supremely worthy and full of delight and joy. And as we read in our psalm today, I alone am a rock in salvation. There is no other God beside me. Okay, so that's worship. Worship is about your heart and who or what is driving your heart. Okay, so with that in mind, you say, what is a God then? What is a God? I know this is going to feel like spiritual kindergarten, but... What is a God? Well, a God, according to that great theologian Martin Luther, a God is that to which we look for all good and in which we find refuge in every time of need. To have a God is nothing else than to trust and believe him with our whole heart. you see that? That's a God. It's to believe in something else in such a way that it has our trust and our belief of our whole heart. Back to Luther. As I have often said, the trust and faith of the heart alone makes both God and an idol. That to which your heart clings and entrusts
1: itself is, I say, really your God. Wow. You got that? That's a God. See, God, a God to you,
0: is defined by the activity of your heart. It's what you look to in time of need. It's what you believe with your whole heart. It's what you trust in. It's what you cling to. It's what you submit to, according to Mr. Luther. Okay, so that is God. Now, if that's a God, I mentioned this before, then what is an idol? Very simple. An idol is anything that replaces the true God in life. Okay, and that
1: that should be capital G here. Let me fix that for you. All right, that's not right. Because the true God should be capitalized. There we go. That's better. Okay, much better. Okay, an idol
0: is anything that replaces the true God In life. Now, now with that in mind, I want
1: you to start thinking with me. Is there anything in your life that sometimes competes with the loyalty and the trust and the love and the allegiance that should belong to God alone? Can you think of anything? and you don't have to share but but maybe some of you would like to share money <laughs> money yes uh, how how can money be an idol you can trust in your bank account to keep you safe for the future
0: yeah you can trust in your bank account and and, and how many of you've done that before just raise your hand i'll put my hand up how many of <laughs> you've trusted in your bank account there. Uh, how many of you in the last three months are learning not to trust in your bank account?
1: <laughs>
0: okay. This the, the, and and you know it, it's part of the way God is is redeeming this trial, isn't He? I, I mean this this pandemic has stirred up so many things in our hearts to where we now say, man, I thought I was really trusting in Jesus, but when that first retirement statement in from from came in from the first quarter. I went, oh, and when my heart sank and when I got angry and when I struggled with depression, you go, well, maybe I wasn't trusting Jesus as much as I thought I was. And that's one of the ways that God is redeeming this time. He he is causing us to see what do we really lean on. See, see, here's the thing. I don't, I don't know where I first heard this. I was a new Christian. I was probably still in college when I heard this, but I heard a pastor say one time that, you know, whatever, <laughs> whatever happens to the thing you love the most happens to you when you lose it. Right? So if your money goes away, right, you fall apart. Uh, if your health is compromised, you fall apart. You know, whatever happens to your idol happens to you, and that is a real—it's a real telling time right now, as as we have discovered so many things that we might be leaning on a little bit too firmly instead of God. What what are some other idols that 21st century American evangelical Christians struggle with? Leaning on the government. Leaning on the government. Yes. Yes. And, uh, and you know, we're thankful for government. Uh, God tells us government is a gift, uh, even though it's not perfect. that's certainly not perfect. Um, when Christians pursue political
1: solutions to spiritual issues, we've committed idolatry, haven't we? When we elevate governmental political pursuits, as the answer, when our well-being rests on the outcome of an election. Now I'll put my hand up and say I've been there. That was hard.
0: Uh, and it's an election year, isn't it? it? I mean, you think things are 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 weird now? Uh, wait till what? Ha- wait till November. And uh, uh who knows what will happen? Uh, but absolutely, yeah. Government politics. Okay. What's another? Uh idol idol that's uh that we're tempted to pursue.
1: Entertainment.
0: Entertainment, yes. Entertainment. Uh what else?
1: Well, oh, families. Things? Fam- families, like some some people put their kids or something before in other words, they think about their families before. That's right. Which is good. It's not saying so bad to think about families, but yeah. Family is important,
0: but you can't uh, put family members ahead of you, that's right yeah, so family members, uh, health and sure and, and status, yeah, and I want you to just just pull the car over <laughs> for me with, for a minute here. How many of the things that you guys just listed are bad, sinful,
1: horrible things? None of them, right. So what that tells us is you know family
0: and entertainment and government. And health and money, none of those are intrinsically sinful. But they can they can become too important. Uh, they can uh become more of a focus than they need to be. And I appreciate what Daryl said. Um, we ought to love our family, we ought to value our family. Uh, family is a gift from God. And, and so is our money. So is wholesome entertainment. So is uh government, <laughs> insofar as it's righteous. Um but, you know, we look at that and we say, none of those things are bad things, but but what we do, and you need to get this, what we are sophisticated at, all of us have doctoral degrees in worship exchanging. That's what we do well. We take God's good gifts and we make them into gods. We take the blessings of God and we make them ultimate pursuits. Um, and and that's where we really need to be suspicious of our hearts and guard our hearts. Okay. So with that in mind, I just want to walk through some some points with you to sniff out idolatry. Because what Isaiah is saying in Isaiah chapter 44 is that uh, a, a huge part of Israel's problem is that they are they are putting their love and allegiance on these false gods. Uh, you know, they're they're going and. Um, uh, uh, you know chopping down trees and part of it warms the house, part of it makes dinner, and the other part is we fall down and we worship, and we say, deliver us and, and you know what? Um, when we open up our bank statement with shock and depression and anger, you know what we 're really doing we 're getting down on our knees and we 're worshipping the bank statement. We really are. Uh, we're more sophisticated. This is 21st century idolatry. This isn't pagan third world idolatry, but it is nonetheless an offense of God, and it is a worship disorder. Uh, someone put on the chat window here. Some people worship their own children like little idols. Yes, yes, the short people in our houses can become idols, and uh, and you know what? Uh, even when they grow up to to be not so short, you know, uh, many of us have adult children, and it's easy to worry about them and to lean on them and to uh, think of them uh, in ways that are inordinate and, and improper. So, okay, so with that in mind, let, let's go back here. And I just want to talk about some points for, for sniffing out idolatry, okay? So let's just look at this here. Um, before we do that, I, I forgot the quote by Ed Welch uh, in light of what we read in Ezekiel. Scripture permits us to broaden our definition of idolatry so that it includes anything on which we set our affections, and indulge as an excessive and sinful attachment. Okay, you see what he's saying there? He's saying it doesn't, idolatry doesn't have to be intrinsically morally bad. It can just be something that we indulge in as an excess and as a sinful attachment. So therefore, he says, the idols that we can see are certainly not the whole problem. Idolatry includes anything we worship, the lust for pleasure, a respect or love, Uh, the lust for power, control, or freedom from pain. Furthermore, the problem is not outside of us, located in the liquor store or on the Internet. The problem is within us. Alcohol and drugs are essentially satisfiers of deeper idols. The problem is not the idolatrous substance. It is the false worship of the heart. And, And there, of course, he's talking specifically about alcohol and drug addiction. But what he's saying is alcohol and drug addiction is basically a worship problem. Because the reason people turn to alcohol and drugs are because they provide some sort of deeper satisfaction, uh, maybe to just relax or have a good time, or maybe to forget about their problems for a little while, uh, <clears throat> maybe to, um, you know, to enjoy acceptance from peers or something like that. Uh, but 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 the point is the worship of the heart is the real issue. Okay. So how can we sniff out idolatry? Let me just give you some bullet points here. Uh, to think about uh, today in light of our text, okay? How do we know where to find this sort of covert idolatry going on in our hearts? Well, number one, when we see a desire or a delight in sin, this is probably the easiest form of idolatry. When we look at our life, when we evaluate life, and, and we discover that there are things that God tells us in his word are morally wrong and sinful, and yet we find a secret delight in them, or maybe a not so secret delight. Those are indications of idolatry. And, and, you know, we, uh, pastor Cherry will talk about some of these, uh, when he reads from Ephesians chapter four this morning. Um, but you know, we're, we're talking about selfishness and pride and anger and, and worry, and fear, and, and those sort of heart things that go on. And you say, well, why, why do we struggle with those? Because we delight in uh, sinful entertainment. We delight in revenge. We delight in giving a person a piece of our mind. We can delight in... Um, uh, 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 demanding our way and, and manipulating to get our way. And all the rest, you know, those are all examples of idolatry because those are desires and a secret delighting in things that God has said are sinful, okay? And those are that's sort of obvious idolatry. Let's talk about some less obvious idolatry. What about when we deify good things? When we deify good things, when they become too important and we listed some of those things a moment ago didn't we money, entertainment, government, children, family those are all uh, examples here. Um, listen listen to what uh, Paul says in Philippians chapter 3. Um, now uh, you don't need to turn there but, but just listen listen to the description of what he talks about here okay he, he says in ch- this is Philippians 3:17. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk, of whom I often told you and now tell you, even weeping, they are enemies of the cross of Christ. So so Paul's saying, uh, there are some people that went out, professed faith in Christ, they were walking with us, but now they are our enemies and it's grievous to Paul. You say, well, what happened? What, What did they do? Verse 19, it says, whose end is destruction, Here's the key phrase, whose God is their appetite. Oh my, that's personal, isn't it? When I deify food, when I idolize eating, And and notice notice the language Paul uses here. He actually says their God is their appetite. (laughs) So that's, that's a clear example of taking something immaterial, like eating, like food, and deifying it, turning it into a false god. And when we take good things and make them into ultimate things that compete with God, we have committed idolatry. Number three, when we see excess and indulgence, excess, and indulgence. So many things that God gives us in life are to be enjoyed. We can keep. We can use the example of food, right? Um, <clears throat> you know what? We we uh, I was listening to uh Al Mohler's um, the briefing this last week, and he was talking about a headline that uh, uh, eating meat is over, and he was talking about the uh, the anti meat uh, movement. And, and this isn't just, you know, this isn't just vegan issue. This is just, you know, kind of the, the vegetarian worldview. And, and of course for some people, that's a dietary choice and that's fine, but we understand that there's a whole worldview. There's a whole movement out there, uh, that that is much more than just a dietary preference. And uh, Dr. Mueller was talking about this and, and he reminds us that both in the Noahic covenant, the covenant with Noah back in, in Genesis, and also in the book of Acts where, uh, uh, Peter is uh, told by God about the fact that uh, Christians do not need to follow the kosher dietary laws of the Old Testament. That those are those are completed in Christ and they no longer apply. And yet, we when we, when we think about eating uh, that the Bible says we should enjoy as God's good gift, we can turn that into excess and indulgence, can't we? Uh, we can eat too many Twinkies. Uh, we can have too many scoops of ice cream. Uh, we can have Uh, way too much in terms of what we're eating and what we're drinking. And um, uh, so excess and indulgence. When we see excess and indulgence in life, uh, we need to think about idolatry. Number three, ask yourself this question. Do I look like a slave? Is there any area of my life where I look like a slave? Um, Paul says in Romans chapter 6, that we are no longer a slave to sin. Before Christ, we were all slaves, right? We were slaves to sin. We were slaves to our lusts and desires. And in Christ, Romans 6 says, we're no longer a slave to sin. We, we, we can say no to sin. But the reality is, because we all struggle with indwelling sin, that indwelling sin wants to pull us back into idolatry, into slavery. And uh, you might look around in your life and just say, are there any areas of my life where it seems like I am being mastered by something else? Paul's going to say that in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, you know it, but I will not be mastered by anything. So it's a balance, isn't it? God wants us to enjoy his good gifts but we don't want any of those good gifts to become a master to where we're enslaved to it in some way. Number five, I need to think carefully about my needs, my expectations, and my demands. My needs, my expectations, my demands. All three of those are code language for idolatry. So so married couples out there, when, when you say married couples to your spouse, I just need you to... Well, you might want to double-check that because sometimes when married couples talk about his needs and her needs and my needs, what we're really talking about is my idols and your idols and my false worship and your false worship. Expectations and demands, that's that's typically the language that we use. Um, When we demand our rights, when we demand our ways, we're thinking about idolatry. And uh, this is exactly what James talks about in James chapter 4, verse 1. He says, What's the source of the quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? That word means the feeling I get when I get what I want. James says, You want to know why you fight? You want to know why you can't get along with other people? Because you love to get your way. You demand to get your way. And when you impose that expectation or need or demand on another person, it will start a fight. That's verse 2. You want something and you don't get it, so you commit murder. You're envious and you can't obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Idolatry is seen in our needs, our expectations, our demands, and our rights. Number 6. And this this is really um, pretty convicting. but I I think we all can be guilty of it at times. When we end up using the true God as a means to something else, when we use the true God as a means to something else, we we know this, right? God wants our hearts all the time, doesn't he? He wants us to walk with him. He wants us to trust him. He wants us to acknowledge him in all his ways. We want to glorify him whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, right? Right? And then what happens? We, we go through life and, and God just kind of slides off. You know, God ends up in the gutter of our lives, doesn't he? And then something happens. And all of a sudden what? All of a sudden we need God. God, God, will you heal this relative? God, will you provide for this unexpected expense? God, will you, will you uh, provide for my need here? God, will you, will you help me with this relationship problem? You know, And what we end up doing is we end up using God for our own selfish needs. And that's idolatry, guys. I mean, I, I will put my hand up and admit that there are times that the reason I'm turning to God is not because my heart is wanting to love and trust him alone in my need, but I'm using God like a vending machine. I'm turning to him, putting my coin in, because I want something from him. And that's idolatry. That's using God. And and as we saw in Ezekiel, God doesn't want us as a vending machine. He wants our hearts. He wants all of us, all of our heart. Uh, You guys know the commandment, that we would love the Lord our God with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our strength. Um, And that's, that's the bottom line there. Also, we can think about using... Uh, the true God is a means. If you want to know idolatry in your life, follow the trail of ungodly emotions. Follow the trail of ungodly emotions. Your ungodly emotions, my ungodly emotions, things like sinful anger, sinful fear, worry, anxiety, sinful lust, um, pride, selfishness, ungodly grief. If we follow the trail of our godly, ungodly emotions backward, at the end, of market, every single time, the origin of your and my ungodly emotions is idolatry. I'm angry because I didn't get what I want. I'm fretting because there's something I need and I don't have. So follow your ungodly emotions back far enough and you will find idolatry. Time, money, attention. We look at our, our Google Calendar. We look at our uh, online uh, bank accounts. And, and our money and our time and our attention all point to what are valuable to us. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that everything we spend our time, money, and attention on is idolatrous. But it does mean that if we're struggling with idolatry, it probably is going to show up in our Google Calendar, our checkbook, and in what we're giving our attention on. And last question. When you all of a sudden have a moment, okay? Have you ever had this? I, I went to the store the other day and I realized that I forgot my phone. You ever done that? You forget your phone? Because I don't know what you're like, but whenever I have a moment, I find myself pulling out my phone, right? See? Yep, here it is. So what do you do when you don't have your phone? You, you'll realize that, you know, hide your phone somewhere. And then when you have a moment, watch the panic attack that happens as you don't know what to do with yourself. right, and that's what you do. Where does your heart go? Where do your thoughts gravitate toward when all of a sudden you have a free moment? And chances are that will tell you something about what you're loving what you're trusting, what you're focusing on, what you're occupied with. And again, those don't have to be bad things. But these sort of questions, these sort of evaluations, give us a window into the worship engine that is in our hearts. And as we saw in Ezekiel, we see it in Isaiah, God wants our hearts. And literally anything in this life, guys, anything in this life from simple desire that becomes a demand all the way to cutting down the live oak in your backyard and turning it into a buddha shrine in your backyard and everything in between is idolatry and as we've seen in isaiah there is one god there is no one like him he is the beginning he is the end there is no one who speaks and it comes to pass there is no one who predicts the future there is no one who redeems and saves as our psalm said this morning there is no one who is our rock and our salvation and if that's true shouldn't he and he alone occupy
1: the worship of our heart
0: okay so so let's uh let's do an evaluation let's look at our hearts today and and, and uh, eradicate any residual idols. Let's be mindful of those things, and as we grow in the greatness of who God is in our minds, uh, let's strive for an exclusive worship of our great God and our great King alone. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we thank you uh, for Mr. Isaiah and how he has helped us to see the folly of idolatry and and the greatness and the uniqueness and the splendor of who you are. Uh, Father, we all see idols in our hearts. Will you help us to be more mindful of those things and be able to turn away from those false allegiances and that false worship? Lord, we're, we're grateful. We know you want our hearts, and we thank you that in Christ you are redeeming and saving and reforming to prepare us for a day when our heart will only, exclusively, continually, and without any defect or any deviation, will worship you alone for all of eternity. Thank you that you're fitting us for heaven even
1: now. Help us to be a part of that process for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.